Well, as we continue uh, our series of the day on the new birth, we turn first of all tonight to uh, John 8, verses 31 through 47. John's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 31 through 47, and then turning over to 1 John, chapter 2, verse 28, through into chapter 3 and verse 10. Let us hear God's word. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And then turning over to 1 John 2 and verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him that is in the Lord Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The Lord bless this reading of his holy word. Our brother will now lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for the written word. We thank you for the proclaimed word. We thank you for the word that applies to our heart. That it may give us thought that we may dwell upon it. David talked about the songs in the night that sometimes we may lay in bed and just meditate on your word. We thank you for the proclamation of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, having looked then this morning at... Uh, the new birth examined, we come tonight then to consider the new birth applied, and we particularly want to look at 1 John 2, verse 28 through into chapter 3 and verse 3. We've been seeking today to identify and to clarify what it means to be born again or what it means to be born from above. One of the things, and I'm trying to keep off a hobby horse, is the way in which, in the history of our theology, these two pictures of our salvation have been what we call conflated, run together. Hence, the uh, illustration this morning of going to the pharmacy, picking up uh, photographs, and finding two of the photographs run together. And that's what's happened so often when uh, theologians in particular have considered Adoption on the one hand, a picture that Paul has of the gospel, and a picture now that we come to in John's writings of the new birth. When we think then of the new birth, what it means to be born again, what it means to be born from above, we are considering an important teaching which has come into the New Testament. I want to say something tonight that I meant to say this morning, and this may help you in terms of the clarification, that this teaching of the new birth, what we call the doctrine of regeneration, 
has come to us in the New Testament in two ways. First of all, it's come to us by means of the term regeneration. But that term regeneration is found only twice in the New Testament. Once on the lips of Jesus. You can turn to Matthew 19 verse 28. And Jesus makes a very profound statement there which does not come through in the English. And he says, in the new world, I shall be seated on a glorious throne. But that term or that phrase, the new world, is one word in Greek which means regeneration. In other words, he's saying that although we personally think of regeneration in terms of the miracle that happens to me when I become a child of God, there's a far more expansive understanding of regeneration that Jesus had in mind. He's saying that what happens to the individual when they are born again or born from above and become a child of God, a child of the kingdom, born of the Spirit of God, is in a macro sense, a far bigger sense, going to happen to this cosmos when Jesus Christ returns in power and glory. There is going to be a miracle that occurs which is going to transform, make anew the created order where all evidence of the fall is going to be extracted and taken away. And this world will be as this world should have been had the fall never taken place. And then you find the Apostle Paul also uses the term regeneration and he uses it in Titus 3 verse 5, where he speaks in the individual sense of regeneration, where he talks about the washing of regeneration. Clearly, like John, also basing his thought upon the Old Testament, we saw this morning that there was the vision given of the Spirit of God doing something mighty in the life of the individual. Hearts of stone would become hearts of flesh. Hearts would be circumcised. And then Jesus coming as light into the darkness. And so the natures with which we are born in our fallen state, in our fallen context, something miraculous is going to happen. Hearts of stone made hearts of flesh. Unclean hearts made clean. And so Paul speaks then of the washing of regeneration. But when we think of the doctrine of regeneration, we have not only the term, but as we saw this morning, when we come into John's writings, we have this robust metaphor, what we call a model. John doesn't use the term regeneration, and yet he depicts the regeneration in terms of this down-to-earth picture of what it means to be made anew by the Spirit of God in regeneration. The term means to be born again, but also the model means to be born again. Well, that's a little bit of information for those of you who like word studies and like to get more deeply into the Scripture. But I ask you again, and I'm not presuming that you cannot answer in the affirmative, but I'm asking the question not for the majority, I'm asking the question for the sake perhaps of the minority, God alone knows. Are you born again? The question can only be answered in a fundamental sense 
If you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, Christ came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him as religious as they were. So the important point tonight is not how religious you are, little children. The important point tonight is not how many Sunday school classes you've been to. The important point is whether you have received Jesus Christ, and you can only do that through the new birth. And so when we come then to consider the new birth, and we think of it as a picture which is set side by side with adoption into God's family. Theologians in the past talked in terms of this mantra, adoption gives you the standing of a son of God, the new birth gives you the nature of a son of God. Now that is true insofar as it goes, but I think it's a very reductionist view of what happens in the new birth. Because when you look at the new birth, what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be a child of the King, we are not simply given a new nature, but we are also given a new standing. We are not, as Hattie Buell's hymn says, anymore aliens by birth, but we are sons, children of the King. And you see this uh, new standing. We mentioned it this morning in terms of John 1.12. We are children of God, born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And this emphasis upon standing in the new birth comes back here in verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. That's our right. That's our authority. And so we are. But then, having implicitly talked about the standing of the child of God, we are royal children. That's our self-identity now that we are in Christ. We also can speak about the fact that we have a new nature. More explicit in the picture of the new birth is the nature we have received from God. Isn't this what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. We are born to our earthly parents, and we have a fallen human nature. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so when we are born again or born from above, we have a spiritual nature. And this is what Jesus says in John 3, 6. And we have been begotten by the Spirit. And so we no longer live in the flesh, we live in the Spirit. I said it this morning, we have God's genes, spiritual and moral genes, says Paul. We are new creations. So in the new birth then, these two general observations as we come back to the subject tonight. In the new birth, we have a new standing, but we also have a new nature. And this is an entirely new nature. We, as Presbyterians, are blessed with wonderful subordinate standards, wonderful subordinate standards. God so blessed the Church of Jesus Christ through those Westminster commissioners that met in the 1640s and drew up the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Directory of Public Worship. But they are subordinate standards. As Protestants, we believe in the supreme rule of Scripture for faith and for conduct. 
and the subordinate standards only have authority insofar as they accurately summarize the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. And every now and again, you come across a statement, not simply in our subordinate standards, but in the subordinate standards throughout the history of the church, of infelicitous statements. And we have one in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13, in the chapter on sanctification, where it speaks about us as having a regenerate part. Now, that is unfortunate because it's highly confusing to come back, uh, to move from the term to the metaphor. When a person gives birth, they do not give birth to part of a baby. We are not partially born and partially still in the mother's womb. And so to speak of a regenerate part does not, it seems to me, capture what is the teaching of John here in the New Testament, where regeneration, this new birth, pertains to our whole nature, that we no longer have the sinful fallen nature, but we have a new spiritual nature, which is why we can desire the things that God desires, which is why we are empowered to pursue the things that God would have us pursue. Well then, against this background of the new standing and the new nature, we want to examine then tonight the four responsibilities that John mentions here in these verses from verse 28 of chapter 2 into chapter 3 and verse 3. And the first responsibility he mentions, is to abide in Christ. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Little children, it's a very endearing term. And John may have in mind two things. First of all, the fact that he's speaking to those whom he believes have been born of God, and so they are children of God, children of the King. But there's also a secondary sense in which he might describe them as little children pertaining to his own fatherly care of them as those to whom he's writing. Well, whether he's referring to them as children of God or as his own spiritual children, it's important to understand that it is only because they've first been made children of God by the Spirit of God that they can, in some sense, be described by John as his little children. But either way, whatever is intended, the first responsibility is, is clear. They are to abide in Christ. And we're asking, well, what does that mean? Well, spiritually, abiding in Christ means that we walk in the light as He is in the light. You can go back to chapter 1 and verse 7, where John makes this point. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. But there's more to abiding in Christ than something that is spiritual. In other words, pursuing the things that Christ pursues. There's also walking in the truth as He is in the truth. And He deals with this then in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, 
but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Antichrist? He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And so, Abiding in Christ, then, is something which is spiritual on the one hand, something which is theological on the other. It means pursuing the moral and spiritual values which are important to Christ on the one hand, and it means pursuing the teaching of orthodoxy that we've been taught from the apostles as Jesus would have us do so. And so these two things, spiritual and theological, we keep in tandem. This is what it means to abide in Him. And John goes on then here in verse 28 to say that there are two benefits accruing to us doing that. And the first is positively stated. Abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence. Notice John's own confidence. When, not if, when He appears. Not only is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ certain, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ will be sudden. And so, when He returns, when He appears, it is important that we are found to be abiding in Christ. In other words, spiritually pursuing Christ, the things that please Him, the things that glorify Him, both spiritually and theologically. And in that way, as we reflect upon the fact that Christ is coming again, we may have confidence. Now, let's be clear. If we are born again of the Spirit of God, we cannot lose our childhood before God. You know, I mentioned this morning being on the Ask the Pastor program, and it was a great experience for eight years. I learned a lot from those other panelists who were on there. But as I mentioned, I was one of the three token Reformed brothers, and so I had to go my own way quite often. And one of the areas where I had to go my own way was on this issue of whether a person can fall from grace. And I had a wonderful friend on there, and I still count him a friend. And he had an immense knowledge of the Scriptures. I wish that... I had that knowledge of Scripture to be able to pluck out of the air a text of Scripture like an encyclopedia. But he wasn't so strong on interpreting Scripture. And so when the issue came up as to whether a person can fall from grace, he would say this, I know that there are those sitting next to me. I know that there are those who will quote the text, none shall pluck you from my hand. But I do truly believe that it is possible for us as Christians to climb out of the hand of the Lord Jesus. And so it came to my turn to answer. I said, well, there's a problem with that. And the problem is if we are born again of the Spirit of God and have God's genes, we don't want to climb out of the hand of the Lord Jesus. And even though we have empowerment as the children of God to live for God, 
That power is not so that we can depart from God, but so that we can follow God. But while it is true, and this is why in this Grand Rapids, West Michigan area, some people are very gun-shy about the statement, once saved, always saved, because it's been so abused. This is why we need to be careful in the way in which we live. And I speak first and foremost to myself. Because Jesus Christ is coming again. And while we cannot lose our salvation, we cannot cease to be the children of God once we are truly born again of the Spirit of God, we can lose our confidence in being the children of God by ceasing to abide in Christ, ceasing to walk in the light as He is in the light, ceasing to walk in the truth as He is in the truth. And so we take hold of the wonderful privilege of the grace of God and we say, oh, that's wonderful. Now I'll go and live as I like. And the truly born again may do that for a season but cannot do it permanently. But when we wake up to what we're doing, one of the byproducts of that thinking is that when we think then of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose our confidence. What is Christ going to think of me when he returns if I have not been abiding in him? If I have not been walking in the light as he is in the light? If I have not been walking in the truth as he is in the truth? And so, positively, we need to abide in Christ because that's how we sustain our confidence. But negatively, says John, that we not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Remember how the Apostle Paul says, you know, some are scarcely saved. Peter says this too. And the person who has been born again of the Spirit of God, born from above, is the person who wants to abide in Christ so that they can live confidently in the here and now. And so that when Christ returns, we won't be shrinking in shame because we have been royal children living in contradiction of the family name. Recall Jesus' words in Luke 9, 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It matters then how we live, and it matters what we believe. I've been following a story in the British press of the British politician, Nick Farron. He was leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, a sort of political party down the middle, espousing great personal liberty, but he was a Christian. And when they went through the last general election, of course, the media wanted to know one thing about him as leader of the Liberal Democratic Party, knowing that he was a Christian. And with all the massive issues going on in our world, this is what they want to know. Do you believe homosexuality is a sin? And they pressured him day after day after day. They just wanted to know this one thing, and you know what's going to happen. If he says homosexuality is a sin, not only is he downed as a politician, the party is downed. 
And in the heat of day after day, he came out and said that he didn't believe homosexuality was a sin. And so what happens? Well, they don't win the election. They never do, the Liberal Democrats. But get the other side of the election. And this man, who was likely truly born again of the Spirit of God, stood down as leader of the Liberal Democratic Party, and he said, I am a Christian, and I'm not ashamed to be a Christian. And now this week, he comes out and says, I hold my hands up. I should never have said that homosexuality is not a sin. I compromised in the moment. I ask your apologies. You see, this is the pressure these Christians were under in the first century. This is the pressure we are under today. If we are going to abide in Christ, our first responsibility is the children of God. Will we walk in the light as He is in the light? And will we walk in truth as He is in the truth? And the pressure comes upon us to cut corners morally, to cut corners theologically, so that we can keep our place in the workplace, so that we can keep our place in the world and gain dignity amongst those around us. Well, then, secondly, the responsibility, verse 29, is to practice righteousness. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, as you make your way through 1 John, you find that righteousness comes up a number of times. In the first place, God is righteous or just. Think back to that wonderful text in verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you think of the Lord Jesus being described as the righteous one in the first verse of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He has turned God's wrath away from us by suffering upon the cross. He has propitiated God's wrath, and by His shed blood, He has covered our sins, and He is our advocate before God. Therefore, those granted a new nature in the new birth, says John here in verse 29, are to resemble the righteousness of God the Father, the righteousness of God the Son. Remember what I said this morning. You have a newborn baby, and to those of us looking on, especially those of us not accustomed to children, we cannot tell one baby apart from another. They're all precious. But as the baby grows and matures, you see the family likeness, you see the family resemblance. And so what John is saying here, in effect, is this. That as we grow as the children of God, so the family resemblance becomes more obvious. One of the ways in which it becomes obvious is that we practice righteousness. Well, what are the incentives to practicing righteousness? Well, the first is that it demonstrates our belief that Christ, the righteous one, is returning. Think about this for a moment. He is coming from the very throne room of heaven. You go back to Psalm 89, and what do you read? You read that the very foundation of the throne of God is righteousness and justice. So he's coming to the very from the very epicenter of the righteousness in this universe. 
And he's coming back as the righteous one. And he's coming for those who've been born of God, born as children of the kingdom. And although our new birth, being a mystery, a work of the Holy Spirit, is unseen to the naked eye, the one thing which makes our new birth visible is our practicing of righteousness. In other words, it is the fact that we resemble God in His righteousness, Jesus Christ in His righteousness. That's very challenging, isn't it? That we are found to be acting justly. Think of the prophecy of Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So loving justice and acting justly and standing up against injustice is part of the evidence that we are born again. And it demonstrates the fact that we believe that the righteous one is returning. How many of you saw the news this week of the death of Edgar Ray Killen? of the KKK, a part-time preacher involved behind the scenes with the slaying of three civil rights workers decades ago. He wasn't on the scene of the killing, and yet it was clear the evidence came to light that he was behind the scenes, orchestrating as a professing child of God, such a gross and heinous injustice in the death of three people. And for those decades, either he denied it or they couldn't build the case against him. But finally, I believe it was in 2005, he was imprisoned for what had happened. And now he has gone to meet his maker. We are in some senses no different from him. But what was the problem with Edgar Ray Killen? He didn't actually believe the righteous one was returning. Well, the second incentive then is the authenticity of our new birth. We want to prove that we are born again. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. And so there is this mischievous work. You cannot see the wind, but you see its effects. You cannot see when somebody is born again of the Spirit of God, but you see the fruit. What's the fruit? Well, they're practicing righteousness. So we are to be not royal children in name, but in conduct. And this is Jesus' point in John 8, which we read earlier. There he's surrounded by these Jews. And they are saying, well, we have Abraham for our father. And Jesus says to them, in fact, yes, you may have Abraham for your father, but the problem is you don't have God for your father. You have somebody else for your father, and that's the devil. And I tell you why. 
because he's a liar from the beginning, he's a murderer from the beginning. So if you are lying incessantly, and if you are intent incessantly upon murder and injustice, then God is not your father, no matter how many privileges you might have. Satan is your father. And so it is. The challenge comes to us tonight. It says that if we would profess to be born again of the Spirit of God, then it is for us to practice righteousness because righteousness is the visible evidence of an invisible work of the Holy Spirit. But I want to enter this caveat because I think there's a great deal of confusion about this today. People see others do righteous deeds. doesn't matter what they believe. I've been reading the Quran this week for the Sunday school class today. It's all about righteous deeds. Well, if, if they do righteous deeds, well, hey, they must be born again because somebody who's born again will do righteous deeds. It doesn't follow. It doesn't follow for these two reasons. Because the righteous deeds, so far as God is concerned, are not righteous unless two things are present. One is that the righteous deeds are done in the name of Jesus Christ. And secondly, that they are done for the glory of God. So although from a horizontal perspective, we might look out at society and say, well, they're very upright, therefore they must be born again. God is saying the deeds are only righteous if they are done in the name of Jesus Christ and for the glory of God. That's what makes a deed righteous. The third responsibility, to recognize the love of of the Father. You see, in promoting righteous living among the children of God, John is not commending legalism. No sooner does he mention us being born again than he exclaims the wonderful privilege that is ours. Behold or see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The third responsibility then is to recognize the love of the Father. Uh, it says here, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. It could be translated what manner of love, but it could also be translated what place of love is this? Where does this love come from? What country does this love come from? because it's not found here on earth. And so, in other words, the love of the Father is out of this world. And the recognition of the love of the Father grants two things then which are mentioned here in verse 1. The first is assurance. This is what we are. We are the children of God. Now, it's important to understand how assurance works. There's a primary assurance which is based solely in the work of God. My assurance that I am a child of God is outside of myself. It is when what God has done. But there is a secondary assurance which is deduced from the fact that we are practicing righteous deeds. And however inadequately we might be trying to do so, our heart is to do the righteous deeds. Our empowerment by the Spirit is to do the righteous deeds. And when I see 
that I have the same desires as God for righteousness, that I have the same desire as God for truth, I may, in a secondary sense, deduce that I truly am born again of the Spirit of God. I was reading this week in my quiet times from Ezekiel chapter 14. And Ezekiel sits with the elders of the city and he indicts them for their conduct. And this is what he says to them. He says, you have taken idolatry into your heart. You have put the stumbling block of sin before your face. But the person who is born again of the Spirit of God does exactly the opposite. The person who is born again and a child of God takes the idolatry that is naturally within and expels it because it no longer believes it belongs in the life of the person who has a new nature. And sees the clutter of sin before our eyes, in our mind, in our hearts, and to which our wills are so vulnerable. We say, because I am a royal child, because I am a child of God, I will clear away the clutter from my mind. I will clear away the clutter from my heart. I will clear away the temptations which are before my face, which may cause my will to divert into unrighteousness when as a royal child I am called to righteousness. So the recognition of the love of the Father grants assurance, but also the second half of verse 1, it grants courage. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Why is the experience of the love of the Father so, so important? Well, John says, if we are living in this world as born-again children of God, then the world will not know us any more than the world knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is then a sense of alienation in this world. We have our homes here, but we are not at home in the world. We have our associations here, but this is not where we belong. And so what is the comfort of living as a child of God in this world? We are the children of God now, but we are alienated from this world. It's not us. John says, then, this is our courage, that the Father loves me. Even if everybody around me despises me because I belong to God. This was the courage that Jesus deduced when he was serving here upon earth. If all the world is against me, I can go up the mountain and I can pray to my Father that I know his love I know his compassion, I know his delight, and it is that very reality which helps me then to live life in this world of alienation, in this world of hostility, in this world wherein I feel I am not known. And the choices before us, brothers and sisters, at this particular time in history and I fear that too many Christians are doing it. If I cut corners here, if I dumb down 
the truth in this particular aspect. I'll be more acceptable. I'll be better able to win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't do that. Yes, he spoke the truth in love, but he said, this is the truth. And thus he was despised, and thus he was crucified. How many of us really would be crucified? For the way in which we witness, for the way in which we live. The part of the responsibility of being a child of God is to recognize that God the Father loves us. And in the strength of that love, to say in the words of Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. And if all my family relatives forsake me, if all my work colleagues forsake me, if all my neighbors forsake me, even if in the church, in its compromised state, I am forsaken, here I stand. I am a child of God, and it is the love of the Father that sustains me. There is a love from another country, another place, which sustains me in a way that no amount of approval from the world would do so. And so fourthly, in the fourth responsibility, verses 2 and 3, to hope in God's coming. God never abandons His children. And our hope in God's coming then contains wonder, verse 2. Behold, or beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. The return of Christ is not in doubt. And so, John is not in this state of wonder saying, isn't that fascinating that Jesus Christ is going to return again? Well, it is fascinating. But what really fascinates him, what is wonderful to John and should be wonderful to us, and it's a mysterious statement, that when Jesus Christ, the righteous one, returns, I should be like him. Well, what does that mean? Well, it does not mean to say that I will become like God, that I will be divine. The creator-creature distinction will always be in place, and there will always be a sense in which Jesus Christ knows things which pertain to eternity past that I can never know unless he divulges it to me. When John says that we shall be like Christ... He's saying that there's a consummation of this abiding in Christ, so that when Christ returns, there is a transformation that happens in me. Paul speaks about us being face to face with the Savior. And what happens? That all my inconsistencies as a Christian are ironed out. That all my theological anomalies are ironed out so that in the regeneration on the new earth, we will not be saying, well, you see, I believe the Bible means this. Jesus thinks it means that, but I'll go with my interpretation. No, there will be a oneness, a seamlessness between what he believes and what I believe. 
And there will be nothing like this on the new earth whereby we say, well, you see, Jesus, he's perfect. And it's wonderful that he's perfect. And you see, I still have these patterns of sin and I'm still wrestling. I'm doing my best, but I'm just thankful to be in the new world. No, he will be perfectly holy as he is perfectly holy as the Son of God. But I will be perfectly holy as a child of God. And there's an amazing twist in John's writings, which doesn't necessarily come across in English, but let me explain it to you for a moment. John wants to protect the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, and so he calls him son, huios. But we are the children of God. He uses a different term. We are techna. But there is only one place in John's writings where we are called Huios, son. And it's to do with the new earth in Revelation 21, 7. This is what the book of Revelation says. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Why, in the penultimate chapter of the whole Bible, are we suddenly, as those born again of the Spirit of God, called sons of God in John's writings? Because we shall be as he is. There will be no theological discrepancies between what he believes and what I believe, or how he lives and I live. That this wonderful work of God, whereby he has born, given birth to me, begotten me, and I have, through the processes of God's grace, begun to resemble God more and more there at the end of the age when God comes down, when we live in the regeneration of this new world, we shall be like Christ. Sometimes we joke, don't we? And we talk to Baptist friends and we say, well, let's wait till we get to heaven. I look forward to seeing how your theology is ironed out as if we are the completed article, and they sometimes say it back to us. But the reality of the matter is, all our theology is going to be ironed out, and all our lives are going to be ironed out, so that in this marvelous fulfillment, when He comes, the righteous one comes, we should be like Him. You won't be able to put a slip of paper between what He believes and what I believe. The holiness of his life as the son of God and the holiness of mine as the child of God. And then secondly, given the hope that we have in God's coming in Christ, we are called not only to wonder but to work, verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is Pure. Now, of course, we have been definitively cleansed when we were regenerated. That's Paul's term, isn't it? The washing of regeneration. But those who have been washed with the washing of regeneration then go on to wash themselves. How many of us reason like this? Well, you see, when I was a baby, my mother used to bath me. And because my mother bathed me when I was a baby, I've never washed since. Because you see, when I was bathed as an infant, that was good for life. No, we reason this way, don't we? My mother bathed me as an infant. It was definitive. I'd not been washed before. 
But the whole purpose of her washing me was so that I, as I grow, would wash myself. And so when a boy gets to teenage years, you often hear a mother say, don't you? You haven't washed your neck. Go to the bathroom, wash. You've come in from the field, go and wash your hands. And I don't want to discriminate against young ladies here, but let me say, as a young guy, yeah, sometimes we had to be told. Go and get scrubbed up for the meal. Well, I didn't say, well, mom, you washed me as a baby. Wasn't that good enough? Well, of course, in the washing of regeneration, that is good enough. But it is because it is good enough that we now have the desire, we have the empowerment to purify ourselves. And so in closing, then, a word to those who are born again, a word of encouragement. None of us. I've been practicing righteousness perfectly as Christ practiced righteousness. None of us have been abiding in Christ as Christ perfectly abides in the Father. None of us have been wondering with dropped jaws about the love of the Father as we could have been. None of us have been hoping perfectly in the world to come. And so we think of the prospect of the righteous one coming again and we are reminded of the wonderful truth at the end of 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word for confession there is homologio, which means the same word. In other words, when we think about our life, we come to the same deduction as God comes to about our lives. We have the same word. And we come to God in our private prayers and we say, Oh God, I've not been abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ as I should have and could have. I'm a royal child and I need to get back to this consciousness of living up to the identity I have. I've not been practicing righteousness and justice as I could have and should have. I've not been basking in your love, O oh Father, as I could have and should have. I've not been hoping in the return of Jesus Christ. Quite frankly, I've been hoping he doesn't come quite, back quite yet. I'm, I'm really enjoying myself here. I haven't been purifying myself as he is pure. Forgive me. I want to come back to that sense of my privilege as a royal child. And I want to live up to the family name. And I need your fresh forgiveness. Please forgive me. And then for those who are yet to be born again, don't think you can purify yourself by yourself. What's the evidence that you were born again? It is that you receive the Lord Jesus. And go back and take this verse home with you tonight as you go. My little children, chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have full confidence that all those who are born again by the Spirit of God will do just that. Because there is no possibility that those who are born again of the Spirit of God don't go on to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from their sins unto God. We are empowered in the new birth. 
precisely to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We are empowered in the new birth precisely to confess our sins. And God, the father of his newborn children, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Well, may God help us then to live this week as royal children for his own glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge that there is so much in it. And we pray, O oh God, that you would accomplish through your word what you intend. And we're praying that we'd be able to take it with us this week. And that you would accomplish through your word what you intend for your glory's sake and for our blessing. Help us to so live in the light of Christ's return. That when he does return, when he appears, we will have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. This we ask in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.